Hello, I'm Carrie Gard and welcome to Tea Time with Tech Marketing Leaders. Welcome back to season 12. I hope you were able to listen to my previous episodes with Aileen, Sekou, Sienna, and Luke. Some great conversations with cybersecurity marketers and Sekou, who's a marketing, who markets to developers and what marketing means to them and how they're finding success for their brands. In this episode, I get to hang out with John Steinhardt, where we discuss what a marketing career can look like as more people examine their careers and look at making moves. Marketing offers not only options in terms of disciplines, but clear growth opportunities as well, which we dig into and lay out, and hopefully you'll feel inspired to join. As Tech Target Tech Target CMO John Steinhardt is responsible for positioning the company and messaging to their subscribers in ways that maximizes understanding and energizes action. He's convinced that if they do this well, everyone benefits. At Tech Target, they're committed to customer centricity and a win-win view of the world. Here's my conversation with John. Hello, John. Thank you for joining me on Tea Time with Tech Marketing Leaders. I'm great. I'm I'm happy to be here. It's great to be with you across the ocean. I'm so happy to have you. Thank you for joining me on this fine evening. Um, before we kick off into the heart of our conversation, which I'm so excited to dig into, let's first uh, let people get to know you a bit. So what's your story, John? What do you do and how did you get there? I'm the uh, chief marketing officer of Tech Target. We're a large, primarily intent data focused supplier to B2B companies. Um, and I got here through, say, two sections or three sections of a career, one starting as an advertising copywriter, doing both consumer and um, B2B, then really focusing in hard on B2B tech. Um, and moving to the client side, that, that is a software vendor activity and doing that a lot. And then arriving at Tech Target, which is somewhat in between what we call the, the agency world, the marketing services providers, and um, actually selling technology. We do both services and technology. I probably call it the in-between. What is that? What does that mean the in-between in terms of like between the agency and the brand or off on a different sector? What's in-between mean? Now, I'll give you very specifically, we have two software platforms. One is an intent data software platform that provisions intent data that's unique to us, that's captured um, from our, our editorial network. And the other is a virtual events platform that allows customers to execute webinars and and, um, get leads from that activity and understand account behaviors and individual behaviors from that activity. So those are technology platforms that clients buy from us. And then we have a, a large analyst and research department that creates custom content um, that can be specific to a client 
um, or it can be about a particular market segment. So the custom content element is really a marketing service. And then we can provision building from the intent data we can generate leads on behalf of the client and we have different leads products that help clients scale around the world so that they don't have to find as many leads or if they can't find as many leads as they need um, to both help marketing and directly to affect the sales pipeline. So services and technology. And technology, services and technology. That's helpful. in terms of what you're doing now, the CMO for a tech target, what's one challenge you're currently facing? You know, I think the biggest challenge, um, and it's really exciting to see people as they as they grapple with this and they evolve in their careers. The biggest challenge when you're in a business is trying to sell things, is to listen to the market and listen to the customer. We, we all have this um, tension of we need to sell things. We need to make our numbers. And yet, unless we can listen to the market really well, and in a specific selling interaction, listen to what the customer is saying, we just go on and on about ourselves. And we don't really change. We don't evolve. We don't optimize our products and the things we focus on when we do talk. And so this challenge of learning to listen is super critical, both in the moment, the selling moment, and to building better solutions for our clients. And so we get so excited um, that we talk and talk and talk. And it's always a challenge because we're training people to say specific things. Um, it's always a challenge to remember that what we say should be based on what we hear so that we can't learn unless we listen better. We can't be precise and helpful unless we address specifically what we're hearing the needs to be. And that requires that we listen, which means we have to shut up. It is a shift that's happening, I feel like, where it's less me, 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 and more about what our audience needs and what they're looking for. But I do feel like it's this, it's a shift that the market's having in terms of wanting to do it. And a lot of effort, it feels like in making it happen. It's interesting to hear you say that. I'm, I'm kind of seeing a little bit of the opposite. The, the generation that's entering the workforce now has been brought up, you know, we talk about being digital natives, but part of being a digital native really seems to be projecting something out. There's a lot of watching going on, but there is also a call to project um, what you're doing, you know, what, what's happening, what you're eating, all those kinds of things. Um, and yes, it is influenced by listening, but um, it there does seem to be a lot of button pushing, pushing things out by people. So that's kind of why it's a challenge for me because um, there's a lot of, I'd say you could call it pressure to produce volumes of content. But the there's this real tension between more and more and more versus 
really resonant content. And to make really resonant content, you have to figure out what you're actually hearing. It's tough. It's tough to, because we like to think that we know what they want. And I, I totally agree with you, John, of like, you really got to sit and listen. I think we struggle with how to do that in terms of just like, how do we find our audience and how do we have those authentic conversations when as marketers, we're taught to produce and push and produce and push instead of sitting and listening. Where do you listen? and And we're often asked to do that, right? It's like, I'm coming to you now because I need something tomorrow. <laughs> so you so you do your best guess, right? I, I think we know, Carrie, I think that you and I both know that that's not our best work. Now, a real pro in marketing can come up with something pretty something pretty good overnight, but not nearly as good as she could if she really understood what was going on. So if you're in marketing services, there's this real dynamic of how do you get the time to do your best work? And that's really hard. So I would say that that's kind of um, one of the things that that I really emphasize in, in training people and in my own life, um, that part of being a good marketer is listening all the time to the world. So people who are really aware of what's going on in the present, who are dreaming about what could happen in the future, and and I wanna say more about that in a second, um, and have an awareness of what's happened in the past, have a greater ability to integrate that into then how am I gonna talk to a customer need from a position of authority with and and be able to provide advice based on historical grounding and uh, an informed view on what's going to happen in the future. The, the part of the future I wanted to come back to, and maybe it's me, I mean, I'm interested in what you'd say about this. I think that reading among marketers is super important. And I would say reading, um, Nonfiction is really good, especially, but because it gives you an appreciation for the structures of the past, for the idea that history is written by, you know, the victors, and so that it is not the only representation, it is not necessarily a clear uh, factual or complete factual representation. So nonfiction really good. It's great for current events. It helps you in sales conversations should they go in that direction because you, you, you can converse about things that might be relevant for people. But then fiction as well, because part of what we want to be able to do is help our audience imagine where they will be after coming together with us for some great new project. Um, and this practice of imagining and envisioning um, is really hard to develop. But for me, by reading fiction, I, I see these examples of, of fictional events and fictional futures. And so I start to get a feel of how out there you can be and still connect it to reality. So it's helpful to me. So I read a combination of fiction and uh, nonfiction. 
What's a really good example for you of uh, of both, of a nonfiction book that's really hit home for you that you now bring into your work and a fiction book that you also sort of point to and go, oh yeah, that's where I got that idea from, or that's how I'm being influenced by that. Or is it a, or is it more of a, just the practice of, of reading across the board and then cultivating it over time, What's sort of your experience and how you use those. Well, so, so there's nonfiction that's directly related. I mean, there's fiction, nonfiction directly related to work and there's nonfiction related to things that are kind of related to work. So the easiest way to answer this, rather than say, oh, here, what are my greatest hits in marketing? Um, the book I'm reading now, I'm reading a book called 1491, which is about um, Native American history before the arrival of Columbus and how much of it is wrong and read through the lens of the people, the Europeans who wrote the history as they wanted it to appear. And it's just astounding. It's a total total miss of so many important things. And so what I take away from that is that in a business situation, you have this opportunity, sometimes, not always, to help the client see the situation she's facing more clearly. You can only do that if you have a broader view than you know the client will have when they're locked into their personal situation at work. But you can sometimes relax tension by talking about, let's look at it in the broader term. Let's break this down into smaller pieces. Let's take the pressure you're feeling and understand where it's coming from and potential alternatives to dealing with it. For example, how can we get you more time so we can do this right? That would be a kind of situation where you're, you're in a position to help somebody. Now on the fiction side, um, it's kind of weird. So, so I, I just finished a book on Vietnam. Vietnam was a big part of my early, you know, sort of childhood. I'm a, I'm a child of that period. But then I immediately switched over to a new book because it's Black History Month. Um, I like to do a lot of fantasy reading. I think this is kind of funny. So I'm, I, there's this lady who died pretty recently, one of the greatest science fiction writers of all time named Octavia Butler. And I'm reading her book on a vampire, a black vampire who appears as a child. And to me, it, she raises so many interesting points about the interaction of sort of adults that are children, that are physically children, um, the reaction to the people she's biting, um, to there being a black vampire, which they haven't anticipated. And to me in Black History Month, it's really important to read all kinds of perspectives on black experience as I struggle to be my better self and to work more effectively with this huge group of valuable you know, colleagues that I need to attract as customers, I need to serve better as a marketer. Um, and so I have to do a lot of reading in that area. 
So the whole metaphor of, of vampire, because it's fantasy, is really good at helping you get outside yourself because it's not real and yet it can examine all these uh, interesting dynamics of, of human interaction and fears and, and otherness um, in a way that's, that's, I find more accessible somehow. Weird, huh? <laughs> no, it's not weird. It's, it's awesome. I, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of both nonfiction and fiction. I'm reading a ton of my team is probably so sick of me talking about this, but I read a ton of Brené Brown. Um, she just speaks to me in her research. And I love that it's backed by research in how to normalize so much of what we sort of stuff under the carpet and pretend that's not happening um, in terms of our feelings, in terms of how we interact with one another, in terms of that work-life balance and mental health and all of that, right, is just so helpful from a nonfiction standpoint and so helpful in trying to understand each other as humans, not just us as an organization, but how we connect with our clients, how we connect with our clients' clients, how we bring their message forward and how we are all people in doing that. So I love, I read a ton of nonfiction, Brené Brown being um, someone I'm, I'm hyper-focused on as well as um, one of the other ones I recently read was The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek, which also, again, it's just all about, it's not about winning. <laughs> it's not about, um, you know, the game. It's about how you build something that outlasts today and right now and for the future of what we're all trying to accomplish as like a human race almost and how we can contribute to that. It's sort of these really big ideas. Um, but I do find it really helpful in how I relate this to my business, how I relate to, that to my clients, how I help my team grow and where they want to go. Um, and then from a nonfiction, from a fiction standpoint, I love fantasy. Um, actually, there's a whole crew of us that talk about fantasy all the time on uh, our Slack channels. Uh, with the team. And I completely agree that there's this element in fantasy and fiction that by taking it into another world, you're able to see it from a completely new perspective. If it's built, if, if you read a story that's built in our world and feels of the now, then you're putting your own bias on it, I find, versus when it's completely abstract and in something futuristic or fantasy, and it's not anything that feels right here, right now, then you're able to see so much more because you're not putting your own lens on it. You're absorbing it for, for this whole new thing that it is. Um, and so, yeah, I, I love how you're thinking about not just reading it from a fictional standpoint, but how do you take that and then bring it in into your work all the time? It also makes us better writers, it makes us better communicators, it thinks it allows us to think about the story arc of how we become the guides to our clients and to our clients, clients who are the heroes of our narrative. So yes, to all of that. I wish I was an adamant reader when growing up and I, I wish that I, I did this sooner, but it really wasn't until probably the last two years that I really took more to reading and how to actually incorporate that into my everyday. So I, 
I'm a little mad at myself for not doing it sooner, but I agree that it, it has major impact on everything that I do on a regular basis, having really leaned into it recently. Yeah, I mean, so it's really, and so if we bring that back to marketing, so we were talking about, or I was talking about how important I think um, listening is, and to me, reading is a way of listening, and then it also helps you be more informed in playing back. But when you're reading, you're listening to yeah. the writer, and so however you can get into it, either, you know, reading printed word, reading on a Kindle, listening hard to podcasts or even longer form. Um, there's at least two levels that, that I think people should, can use to help them in their, in their jobs as marketers. One is what are they saying? You know, what is the story about? And can I understand more about my world from the interactions I'm seeing in the story? Does it give me insights? I see all the time. This is a metaphor for that interaction. This is a metaphor for dealing mm -hmm. with that team. Um, but then there's the other part about how the heck did they make this? Because as you aspire to do better content, you got to figure out how to make things. And so I just sit there in awe in some of the podcasts that I listen to and say, holy crap, this is beautiful, the way they put this together. And that helps me aspire to, you know, we make lots of videos and we make webinars and we make eBooks and they get better as we learn technique from our reading mm -hmm. and our watching. So watching at two levels, listening at two levels, I think is super important. What's in the story that you can use and how the story was built, I think can be really helpful. And then there's the aspiration part. If you have a really good book, why not aspire to making something in your work that makes other people feel the same way? Like, this was really helpful, or I'm glad I read this. If we yeah. can aspire to that level, I think we've got, we're setting our goals correctly. Not aspiring to get it done, which we have to do like, what, 85% of the time, <laughs> but aspiring to greatness. So, you know, that connects to why I've liked marketing as a career a little bit because um, I get to make stuff and I get to try to make the best stuff I've ever made. And not, not just me, right? By extension, my team. I get to be involved in the making of things that never existed and are better than other things I've seen in the category. And that is tremendously satisfying. Now, because I'm a business guy, they have to work better than other things in the category. So there's a number of things that I think are really good that haven't resonated with our audience. And so at least I'm proud that they were good, but the learning is maybe we shouldn't work quite so hard on them until we have some kind of interim goal, goal posts. Um, but by and large, there's huge joy in making something. Um, I think that's probably shared on the product marketing side where it connects to product management and product development. Very important to be good listeners there. 
to not get overwhelmed by how cool this thing is that we're making uh, without constant feedback from the market, from the customers into this thing that we think is cool, will you actually use it? So critical, it's really critical that people listen in the product space. Um, all the way down at the end of the go-to-market process in the sales interaction, it's absolutely critical. And certainly post-sales in, in uh, customer support, in customer success and the onboarding mm -hmm. process. These are all areas where listening is really good. And of course you have to act. So to be a marketer, it's, you know, different from doing art. There's this really important focus on delivering within a specific time frame. You can't continue to nitpick at things. So you have to develop a process mm -hmm. for a relative high level of quality that you can deliver repeatedly and that you can scale. So that's a, a real pragmatism. Um, that that seriously differentiates marketing from from true art because yeah. even though true even though true art if you're going to make a living through art you have to have deliverables and you have to deliver at reasonable scale to sell some of them right so even a professional artist is not doing art solely for art's sake she's doing it to make a living but it's all the more so on the commercial side, especially in B2B, we're trying to create beautiful, resonant things with a very specific time limit and a very specific cost structure that deliver very specific responses in terms of inquiries and closed business. And so we can't let our artistic kind of selves take over that or we're likely to fail. We won't be as productive as we need to be. Well, as artists, it's really hard to, you know, it's this concept of a painting's never done, right? At some point you have to let go. And as artists, that's incredibly difficult. So it's more of like, at what point do is this considered acceptable to the outside world? And then I can feel like I've met the objective versus what I feel it makes it complete, which is really never <laughs> as an artist. Yeah, you can, so always that scene, you can always make it better. That scene of the artist destroying their work, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's not good enough. Uh, we don't do a lot of that. <laughs> we can't. We don't. There's, there's enough time, right? And and what we consider to be, you know, perfect in our brains versus, like I said, the the client or or the audience. You know, they're going to it's just a matter of whether they can connect with it and they feel um, that there's something for them there, not necessarily what's perfect or what's done. So, um, but it sounds like from a career standpoint, in, in terms of, I love how you broke out the different careers between products, sales and marketing and marketing being this, for what I heard you say, um, this balance between needing to produce outcomes in a timely manner mixed with the idea of being an artist is an interesting dichotomy and an interesting career. I mean, is that why you chose marketing? 
So I, I would say a couple of reasons. Uh, I would say that marketing chose me. So the careers that I prepared myself for, I went to a liberal arts college. There was no marketing major. I didn't know that there were organizations that did marketing. Um, I did like advertisements a lot. There were I liked ads that had humor. I liked ads that had wit. Um, but I was trained as an anthropologist. Um, so I was trained to study cultures and um, the history of cultures. And I did a lot of psychology and I did a lot of laboratory science. Um, and I got out of, I got out of college in a recession, um, a really bad recession. Um, and so that's not a good way to get your first job. <laughs> so in here, yeah. I, I think there's a thing, you know, there's a parallel in terms of what's going on now. There's a lot of jobs, but there aren't necessarily jobs that people recognize as being the job they thought they'd get. So my first experience was um, I couldn't, I, I w- didn't want to get a job in a laboratory. I had worked in a laboratory. I I had three jobs to survive. I had one lucky break. The lucky break was that I got an apartment. I shared it with one person and it was really cheap. Mm-hmm. So that, that was a lucky break. So my cost of living was quite low. Um, but I had, uh, initially I had three jobs. So one was a summer job and that was three days a week at a regional zoo here in New England. Um, and so that kind of fulfilled my interest in animals. Animals are a big part of anthropology too. You often study animal models. You can study animal behavior. Um, my other job that didn't pay anything was as a copywriting intern in an advertising agency. And my third job, which paid the rent really, was a short order cook that I could do at night. So I cooked from like seven to one at night. And the thing was, if you put all these things together, they're, they're great experiences. Um, and by having to do three different things reasonably well, um, you know, cause I sort of thought I, I liked this job at advertising. I had to be very productive. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, you know, so in short order cook, you got to cook because they're shouting orders at you. You got to cook fast. Um, for the, the zookeeper thing, there's a lot of cleaning up, but you do get to interact with the animals. And so that was really good. Um, but in the agency thing, I think it was three days at the agency, three days at the zoo. You know, that's six days out six of the week days. and then five days at night. Um, it, I could be, I had to be very productive for the agencies. I do work during the day and then I try to do work whenever I could. Um, and so that started to increase my speed of productivity as a writer. And um, that's really important. So uh, uh, people who like writing or like reading and think they might like writing um, need to understand if you're going to try to do that as a career, productivity and output is really, really important. Mm-hmm. And, and if you think about people who are good at an instrument, really, really good, um, 
and can pick up new tunes very quick. It's sort of the way it is in um, writing. Uh, you get really good at taking in information, synthesizing it, and then spitting back something original. That practice, because I had little time to do it in, I think was really helpful. Um, and so as we work with writers here, um, we try to work really hard on building up your output. Because we as find in, like, that the, iteration, like uh, output as in iteration in a lot or output as in quality. What do you mean by output? So all different forms. So if you start with something as short as a subject line, we call that short form. I call everything from a subject line through like a 30 second video through a blog short form versus ebooks are longer form. Um, we want to speed the volume of output. And then simultaneously, we're working on, on an awareness of what quality and precision is. That takes a lot longer, but if you can't get to output, you can't buy the time for quality. Mm. If you know the longer and longer you take on quality, the more you're missing on the on the volume of output necessary for everyday processing of your email marketing, your social. So you have to get to short form volume and be very comfortable. You can't sit there and say, "Gosh, I'll write one blog a week and think that that's adequate for a professional writer." Mm -hmm. That. Professional writers write a lot of words. They don't Which have in a marketing. Problem. Yeah, I mean that's an interesting question. Uh, can you can you build a career in marketing without writing? I do think you can. It's just that that would tend more towards what we'd call marketing ops mm -hmm. on the on the technical sort of technical integration and user side. And there's a lot of listening there, right? To implement a product correctly in marketing ops, that um, uh, requires listening. To, to provide um, advice on how to use data that's coming in through your first party systems, uh, which can be a marketing ops role, an analytics role, you have to learn an awareness of what's, what data is useful, what insights are useful, and you have to listen to learn that. Um, and those are, are areas where writing is not essential, um, but it's never a bad thing. So at a minimum, writing accurately and precisely is super helpful. Writing beautifully is a different part of the marketing world more in the the content production space. Yeah, which explains your where you where it all started for you from an advertising perspective. Um, what I mean, we've talked a lot. I love this because our our core conversation that we wanted to get to is around a marketing career and what that means, and we're on the path there. So I just want to start driving that home a bit. And so we talked about what a marketing career can look like. I love your marketing career because I. I always love to ask the question, you know, what's your story? Because when we were children, if people asked us, we wanted to grow up, be when we grew up, it was never, at least for us, it was never a marketing person because we didn't even know that. I didn't even know that was a job. I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah. I didn't understand like the Mad Men world at the age of eight. 
Um, so it's always interesting to me when people tell their stories of how they got here because it's not a linear one and it's always an interesting background like yours. And so it feels like because of that, depending on, you know, sort of these things that make up marketing, but, you know, what, what makes it, what do you feel like? I feel like I, I, people can come into marketing from any number of ways, but what makes a great marketer in your opinion? So I don't, I don't think it is one thing. We talked about the ability to listen and mm-hmm. the ability to take in that information and then bring back out something that informs what you heard. So I see that as applying both to the content marketing world, where what you're bringing back is, I heard this, and now I'm going to talk to you about my stuff um, positioned with reference to your needs. But I see that same process happening on the marketing ops side. Mm -hmm. I heard what your priorities are. I helped you express your requirements. And I'm going to deliver a configuration that will help you solve some of the problems we talked about. So that it's very much listen and respond. So I think you can have a technical systems-oriented, process-oriented background that tends to send you towards marketing ops. And you could say, well, how, how does that turn into a really kind of lofty career? My feeling is that if, if you want to go as far as you possibly can sort of into ownership of businesses, you can get there through marketing ops as you proceed into either a services organization that's providing those services um, to a lot of companies or through a software organization where you're taking processes that are valuable to marketers and you're trying to help automate them, make them easier to do. So there's this track to being a CEO through marketing ops. If we just set that and say that that is a kind of objective. Um, And then on the content producing side, um, you can go and if you include branding elements and you include um, learning about the processes, you can head towards things like the CMO role because you'll understand how to build an organization as well as how to construct the outputs that the organization is responsible for. I think that's a big struggle for people of like what their path is. And it's not, do you feel like it's a, the way you described it was very sort of linear. If you go in the adapts, in the operations way, you could go here. And if you go in the more creative way, you could go here. Is it that black and white, cut and dry? Is it that linear? Well, let's just talk about the CMO role um, specifically, which is sort of the highest role in marketing, but it's not as high as the CEO role, right? Right? You have a CEO title, don't you? I do. Mm -hmm. So that's like the even higher role. Um, So you presumably, you're, you're creating an organization of marketers to serve clients, right? Um, and I'm creating an organization of marketers to serve my company and to serve the needs of my CEO. So I'm sort of working for a person like you. 
who has the responsibilities that you have. Um, so it's a little bit different. But when I'm thinking about being a CMO, I'm thinking about being the person responsible for the many facets of the marketing kind of span of control. And those many facets, facets um, are each one a type of career. So we talked about product marketing. I talked about marketing ops. I talked about content marketing. And that kind of flows both towards a brand area and towards a demand area. You know, one could argue that sales enablement is marketing, kind of very focused marketing. Um, and so there are these flavors and you can get very high in an organization and make plenty of money by specializing in one of those areas. So what my takeaway from that is if you want a great career, think about what you like to do. And marketing is a wonderful place because it's many different possible career tracks. Now, if you want to kind of, if you're a control freak to some extent, you want to, you want to kind of, you get satisfaction about doing things at greater scale. So you want to have a team that enables you to address problems of, of large scale. Um, then you're going to start, you're going to start bridging across those subgroups. And if you're going to have empathy for specialists in any subgroup, my feeling is you ought to try to know a lot about what they do so that at a minimum, you can develop, a, you can really internalize a respect for what they're bringing to the table. So the NCMO is not, doesn't have to be an expert in five or six different subdisciplines, but she better be deeply interested in all of them, um, or she's not going to be able to maximize the strength in each, I think. Yeah, I love what you're saying from a choose your own adventure sort of scenario, which my managing director says all the time. And I love that phrasing of like, I, I think that's the beauty of marketing where you can carve your own path. They're so, I mean, even the facets you broke out are still incredibly high level. If you're talking about branding versus operations, versus sales. And then you can even niche down into those from media to creative, to website, to, I mean, there's, it is literally choose your own adventure of like where your heart, you know, what speaks to you of like where you want to go. And the way that I look at growth in marketing and how I've been communicating to my team is like growth is a jungle gym. Like it's not this ladder anymore of where you come in as assistant, go to senior supervisor da, 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 all the way up. Like it is this navigation of what you want to learn and where you want to grow and what you want to absorb next. And then as you find those ways of niching, then you sort of carve out where your path sort of leads you in a way of things that you love doing versus the things you feel like you have to do because that's, that's the latter. I feel like that's the shift that sort of happened in the last five to 10 years. Are you seeing that on your end too? Or is that just because I've carved out this echo chamber and as an agency and I, that's just sort of what I'm hearing over here, which is entirely possible. 
Well, so I think part of it is is B two B marketing. B so B two B marketing has undergone dramatic shifts in many, many, many pieces of it. Um, advertising for B two B twenty five years ago was a very minor thing because it was too expensive, right? Mm-hmm. You, you, you didn't get the return. Uh, you, you couldn't, if you were selling, you know, engineering products to manufacturing firms, um, you weren't big enough to spend money in television advertising and you wouldn't reach the right audience. And so advertising wasn't really a part of B2B. Even lead gen wasn't really a part of B2B because most much of B2B was about transactions where um, lead volumes, while, while we look at lead volumes, lead volumes didn't function the same way that they do in, say, retail sales, you know, driving inquiries to retail where people are going to buy more chewing gum. So the whole idea of um, price elasticity is very different in B2C from B2B. So I would say, long story short, that the last 25 years have been this fluorescence of marketing in B2B. Um, and so this didn't really exist 25 years ago. This is a new thing. Um, and it's really being created by the practitioners in terms of where are the gaps in the go-to-market where somebody smart can have a big impact? And if that somebody smart happens to be sitting in marketing, well, then that's part of marketing. And marketers, I think by nature, many of them want to solve problems um, in a process. Um, and, the, and, and marketing is using many connected processes. And so they go in and solve them. And often those ideas have become, in the last 20 years, they've become software solutions. So all the stuff that we use, you know, all this Marketo stuff and, and uh, you know, things like chatbots and all this stuff, those are marketing solutions to marketing opportunities or problems. And so I consider the thinking that, that was done to create those products thinking done by marketers. And so, so there's this huge opportunity to invent stuff, you know, software. Yeah. Yeah, there is. That's such an important point. I mean, anything from the ABM tools we use, I mean, that in and of itself became its own um, industry, like in the last five years, right? ABM yeah, you, got the, thing. you got the ABM idea and then you've got tools to help you with ABM, right? Two different opportunities. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to think of it that way of all the MarTech that's come out was really because we had to do something manual at one point. Yeah. And now there's a solution for that. And somebody saw that. Mm-hmm. So they had to be interacting with a marketer, right, to see that. And then they said, let me take that and let me solve it for more folks. So that's an entrepreneurial idea. And so that process of entrepreneurially solving problems, which you see on the agency side, right? Somebody comes to the agency and says, I'm going to hire you guys because you're going to be entrepreneurial at solving my problems faster than I could, 
right, in better ways than I could. I, I see that as a necessity or a benefit of being in marketing because some of the things we make aren't that hard to make, but they still are solution oriented. So we get to practice that. And as you progress in your career, you might seek out bigger and bigger problems to solve and that the solution might take a, the form of a service offering, might take the form of a solution, an implementation of a tool. And in doing that, you start to understand how tools make. And then you could ask yourself, well, why don't I make a tool that solves this problem? And then all of a sudden you're off in the software direction. So, so it's just huge. The, the potential of this career path. And so I would say one of the greatest things about marketing is how varied it is. Um, and I, I don't know, you know, you can say, well, engineering, well, they're always inventing things, but they're building things that they're asked to build. Marketers have the opportunity to continuously invent, invent themselves, invent new processes, all kinds of things. So I think it's like one of the most open careers there can be. Right? I also Obviously, feel like it's like one of the easiest to get into as well. Because oh, well, that's a trap, Carrie. Come on. It's easy to get uh, into, but it's not easy to succeed in. It really is. No, I think you have to write, have, you have to have the right, there's this mixture of background that I feel like we've been talking about from a scientific to creative to solving problems mentality that you need to be successful in it. But if you have sort of the right mixture, once you're in and you start to find your niche and what you love then the opportunities are endless. I agree that it's it's not for everyone. I'm not saying anybody can get into it. I'm just saying that if you have that right mixture of things we've been talking about, then then getting started isn't isn't hard. Unlike oh, no, some other no, no, industries no. where like no, you can be a doctor or a lawyer or a or something to that magnitude, then it's it's a much entry entry getting in, there's a much, um, it's clearly late at night for me, but there's a much, <laughs> uh, bar- a bigger barrier to entry to get into those industries than if, than getting into ours. To succeed in ours, you need to have the right, the right path, the right mixture of, of being successful, but getting started is a lot easier than some of the other industries. Yeah, yeah. So we don't need a license to practice. <laughs> yes. I don't know if I told you, you know, so my mother-in-law said to me something um, when she was meeting me for the first time that was kind of interesting. She said, uh, so I'm told you're in marketing. I said, yep, yep. She said, that's not a real job. <laughs> and so, yeah, so right, low barrier to entry. I thought that was very good. Um it's not a real job until you make it a real job and you produce something that really moves the needle. And so I, I would caution people not to be fooled um, that you are in marketing. You're measured by the things you do that mm-hmm. largely things you, you make. And so on the one hand, it's really easy to get in, but, but here's the way, the easiest way to get in. I guarantee you. Start doing marketing now. So find a category, a company, uh, product set that you like and start writing blog about that. You'll get a job so fast because you'll be the only person 
who they can find in your price range, who's actually demonstrating that she's involved in that industry. Put it on LinkedIn. So force yourself to think about it, to write about it, to have an opinion. You'll get the job so fast you won't believe it. Now, you'll be doing the job that you were proving that you could do, probably. Um, but you won't have any trouble getting a job. Time and time again, I see people say, I want to do marketing and say, okay, where's your portfolio of the work that shows that you really want to do marketing because you do it. And they go, humana, humana, humana. I, I, you know, I, I didn't take a writing class. I go, yeah, but you say you want to do marketing and so much of it is going to involve writing. So why don't you show me that you want to do it? And then I'll start to believe that you will try to do what we need to do to make a living. So, right. right, you could say you want to do marketing. Okay, then do it. There, There's no barrier. The social media is out there. So it do it and you will get a job quickly. You do social media well, you will get a job. You do blogging well, you will get a job. And there's lots of ways to think about this. I mean, as somebody who never really thought of themselves as a writer, um, you know, my, my art form was photography and taking pictures. I mean, now with Instagram, that's so easy to have a point of view and to create art that way. And that's really all it is. That's what marketing is, is having a point of view. Right. And so I agree with you, John, that if you can go and figure out what your point of view is and create an outcome around that and demonstrate it. I mean, I got into media planning as a photographer and I sold myself into that in the fact that photography is a balance between science and art. There's so much scientific measurement that you have to do in photography to be successful, at least when in my day when I was working with film and developing and chemicals, you know, that's how I was able to look at it when they're like, you have to do a lot of math and you're going to be in spreadsheets. I'm like, oh yeah, no, no problem. Like I have to do math on the fly all the time when I'm thinking about my chemical mixture and my filters and how I'm going to create a perfect photograph that isn't just point and shoot. It's all the science that goes behind that, right? So there's lots of ways that you can, you know, through art and through science, get into marketing. Um, writing will come as part of that, but that doesn't necessarily, if you don't feel like you're a writer, there's other avenues. And I just... Oh, yeah. Yeah. But what you're saying is, yeah, come with something that shows the thinking you've done, the processing and synthesizing that you've done. Don't come empty, empty handed. Marketing yeah. is about demonstrating involvement. You are involved in a really productive um, machine. And you've mm -hmm. got to show that you understand that by saying, by showing that you have contributed to the output of that organization or an organization or a process. I could talk about this all day, John, because I think it's so <laughs> awesome. And I just hope that it's inspired the next generation to figure out how to, you know, when they're trying to look at their, their path to success, that this is an opportunity for them. Um, thank you. Thank you for joining me. Before we close out, I do have, you know, talking so much about people and being human and career paths and all that, you know, you shared so much with us about your career path as a marketer and what it means to you. Let's just uh, pull the curtain back a little bit and understand what you, who you are outside of being a marketer and uh, approach my people first questions. Are you, are you ready? I'm ready. All right. 
Um, have you picked up any new hobbies these last few years, given the pandemic and the new world order? No, uh, no new hobbies other than reading at breakfast. Um, that might be a new hobby, <laughs> but I have been paying a lot more attention to my indoor plants. Oh, what are you growing these days? I've got African violets. I've got some bamboo. I've got some different kinds of uh, evergreen stuff going, oh. and then, then a lot of uh, a lot of bulbs outside. I picked up orchids. I figured out how to bring those back to life, so I feel pretty proud that I don't just throw them out when they lose their flowers, which which I did a lot of. But but I brought three now back to life, so I'm feeling pretty proud. Yeah, I never understood. I've never understood orchids uh, uh, over water or underwater. You know. Yeah, yeah, leave them alone. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. All right, second question for you, John. Um, if you could be in the office with your with your team, I don't know. Were you were you always remote? How were you recently remote? What's sort of your remote story? Um, probably more than half the team was physical. Um, now we're still largely remote and the team has expanded a lot. And so we're in more locations. Um, so remote is a reality of the future. Um, and I've worked at a lot of global companies. And so my team was all over the world in the past. So I was pretty comfortable. I do think that for certain types of projects, um, that a lot of co-location is super helpful. And especially when people are joining a team um, mm -hmm. to get to know people so that body language is better understood um, both ways, um, the new member and the existing members. It's, we, we use a lot of wry humor that doesn't translate a lot uh, well. Um, and sometimes we're under pressure and we forget that somebody new to the team um, hasn't yet sort of acclimatized to, to that. And so we have to be very careful. That's particularly hard to do over yes. remote. We can be more empathic, I think, face-to-face. Um, -face. Well, let's, let's say you get to be in a room with your team and some of those new team members and, uh, you know, you want to set the vibe of the brainstorm or the onboarding or whatever it is that you got going on. What song would you want playing overhead to set the vibe? Oh, God, that's really hard because, you know, that's really hard. I would ask the team to bring the songs they like, you know, because because I span a lot of generations. <laughs> For you though, for, for what's personal to you and what mean what means something to you, what what song do you feel like would would resonate with you of what you'd want playing? Uh, me, so I was discussing recently with my wife. I was really getting into this the the new version of the Beatles um, the Beatles documentary, but I'm actually a Rolling Stones fan, and uh, she not a huge fan of either one. She did say I, the Rolling Stones are better. They've been around a lot longer um, and they're kind of bad boys. And I like <laughs> bad boys. <laughs> she said, I like bad boys. It's good on her. 
and be, and being I'm pretty conservative, I think risk averse that is. Um, so I did get a little thrill that she suggested that maybe uh, maybe uh, my favorite band was a band she liked too. So I would start with the Rolling Stones, not necessarily the song Start Me Up, but uh, probably something close to that. Awesome. Well, I'll add that to our Spotify playlist so people can tune in and uh, and get rolling. All right, last <laughs> question for you, John. Um, that was not anyway last question for you john if you could travel anywhere in the world right now with no constraints or challenges where would you go and why uh so i'd go to two places i'd go to um, east africa for the animals uh, and i would go to india for the people um, because of um, the history and the huge diversity of peoples in india and in Africa, you know, I could talk about the people all day long too, but the animals are significantly different from the animals in North America. And so given that I was a zookeeper and I took care of some gorillas, uh, I would really like to go to Rwanda or Uganda. Awesome. Oh, John, thank you so much for joining me for sharing your story and a career path in marketing and how we can all join in on that. And uh, it was just such a joy to have you on. So thank you. Thanks. Let's do it again sometime. Thanks, Carrie. That was my conversation with John Steinhardt. If you're interested in a career of marketing, please reach out to John, reach out to me. Uh, if you remember last last season, I spoke to Jada Holst about marketing and getting into a career. If this is where your heart is or where you're leading and you want to learn more, please reach out. We'd love to help you figure out your next step in what it means to be in marketing and having a career in it. It's awesome. We love it. And we'd love you for you to join us. Thank you, John, for joining me. In my next episode, I chat with Matt Dynan about his career in marketing. It's a very fascinating one. He actually joined Rapid7 and used their training method, which is very interesting in terms of getting a chance to test out marketing product and sales. And then it gets to be choose your own adventure, which Matt did. And then him and I really dig into what it means to build a category which is super cool. So please stay on and check out my conversation with Matt. Autoplay will take you there. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of season 12. It was brought to you by MKG Marketing, our digital marketing agency that helps cybersecurity and data companies get found via transparent, measurable digital marketing. It's hosted by me, Carrie Gard, and CEO of and co-founder of MKG, music mix and mastering done by Austin Ellis. And if you'd like to be a guest, please visit mkgmarketinginc.com to apply.